Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast, where we take you beyond the margin, behind the scenes of the online magazine, and deeper into the stories. I'm your host, Michael Shields, and uh, I got a great podcast for you today. It is one that is dedicated to the genius of Philip K. Dick, and it particularly focuses on and celebrates the new sci-fi television series on Amazon entitled Electric Dreams, which was which was based on Dick's work. Um to really dig into what this series is all about and what it means for Dick's legacy, we are lucky enough to feature an interview with one of the writers and executive producers of Electric Dreams on this podcast, Kaylin Egan. Now, Kaylin isn't simply one of the people involved in bringing Electric Dreams to life, um, as well as The Man in the High Castle, uh, which he was an executive producer on. And as we find out in the interview, he... Um, He'll be writing episodes uh, uh, moving forward in, in season three, which I, I, I'm pretty sure we're on the cusp of. It's 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 going to be released pretty soon. But um, he's also heavily involved in Electric Shepherd Productions, which is a production company dedicated to the stewardship and adaptation of the Philip K. Dick Library. Um, being a curator of Philip K. Dick's catalog is no meager task, as we are speaking about an author who explored weighty philosophical, social, and political themes across 36 novels and 121 short stories. Eleven of its films have been adapted into film, including Blade Runner, Total Recall, uh, twice at this point, Minority Report, and, uh, and Scanner Darkly. Dick's impact is momentous, and, and as technology advances rapidly, and, and, and his futuristic predictions and warnings increasingly manifest themselves. His influence is felt and needed as much today as ever. His works have trium- triumphantly endured decades past their initial publication date, and there's a reason for that. Electric Dreams is based on 10 stories Dick published between 1953 and 1955, but his skepticism about economic, ideological, and authoritative Forces that threaten humankind's ways of life resonate today just as just as much as ever. Um, for those uninitiated, Electric Dreams is an apt way to begin to acquaint yourself with uh, with Philip K. Dick's genius. And the following discussion with Kalen also assists one in uh, learning more about him and uh, and just finding out everything that Electric Dreams has to offer. Um, I will say that there are a few benign spoilers to the episode of Electric Dreams that. That Kalen was involved in writing, which it's it's the uh, I think it's the fifth episode, possibly the sixth. It's entitled uh, "Safe and Sound," but um, 
but I'm certainly confident that uh, that you know what we discuss will only serve to enhance your uh, electric dreams viewing pleasure. It's an uh, it's an awesome anthology. Each story uh, is so unique and different and 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 poignant too. It's 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 a, it's really special. Um, I'm, I I got absorbed by the whole thing and knocked it out pretty quick and. Um, and uh, so Kalen lets us know more about it. He's uh, he's an awesome person, and and we had in a great and we had a great and extremely informative conversation that uh, that I'm sure you're gonna love. So let's just uh, let's let's just dig in. Um, here is my conversation with Kalen Egan. So welcome to the podcast, Kalen. Uh, I truly Thank you. I truly appreciate you taking the time. Uh, congratulations on Electric Dreams. It's it's truly excellent. Thanks so much for saying that. Yeah, no, we're we're pretty thrilled about it. It's it's um it's been kind of a, a long journey to get this one. Well, any project that we do is a long journey, but this one in particular, you know, I think that it even predates me. I've been with this company, Electric Shepherd Productions, mm-hmm. for over ten years, and this is we're trying to get this show made even before that. So. Oh wow! Oh my goodness, we're talking over a decade. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, I'm I mean, it was the first inkling of an anthology show. It goes back that far yeah. uh, as far as turning Philip K. short fiction into let's, anthology. Um, let's start there with Electric Shepherd Productions. I'm, I'm so curious, kind of, you know, sounds like it predates you, but I'm, I'm, I'm so curious how ESP uh, became kind of the torchbearer uh, for the ap- adaptations of, of Philip K. Dick's library. That's, that's a big deal, and um, that's, I mean, it's... Really, sure. it's, it's remarkable. Yeah, it, yeah. It just it it. I mean, it predates me dramatically in yeah. the sense that um, you know his work is, is has been around since the fifties. But uh, his daughter Issa Hackett basically um, was invited into the process of a scanner darkly is what happened, and okay. she became close with the producer Tommy Pallotta mm-hmm. and and the director Richard Linklater, mm-hmm. and sort of found in that opportunity. Um, a role for herself to kind of curate or shepherd this material. They were very, they really wanted her participation. And, you know, around that time, um, there had been some obviously incredible, incredible Philip K. Dick adaptations, yeah. but there had also been a couple that were like sort of studio E that kind mm-hmm. of squandered what she felt was the potential yeah. of the material. Mm-hmm. And she thought, well, rather than stick to that model where the, the studios come with however many millions of dollars and yeah. you say goodbye and you hope for a good movie, yep. she thought, well, maybe there's a role to, to see this stuff through. Yeah. Um, in a more personal way, and so then she started up Electric Shepherd, uh, and it, and I came on not not terribly long after that. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic! So uh, I definitely want to get into that a little more as we move through because I'm I saw some inklings of um, of of things that you might you guys might be adaptating that um, that I'm pretty excited about. But um, oh, I fr- you froze. Sorry. Oh, did freeze? Uh, I was going to say we'll get yeah, into that a, a little bit more. Um, uh, as there's some things that are, I, I believe you guys are adaptating that I read about that I'm, I'm very curious about asking. But um, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'll, I'll give you as much skinny as I can. As you can, <laughs> exactly. But uh, per, I'm, I'm curious about uh, just your personal involvement in, in the catalog, and, and uh, you know, I know a lot of his work has inspired me and, and affected me throughout the years. Have you been influenced by his work? Um, you know, prior well, to this, yeah, he's my he's my favorite writer, and yeah, he was okay. before. And before I met Issa, before I knew anything about this, and you know, I'd read the story. Is I, I guess it's sort of funny, maybe. Um, yeah. I I uh, uh, had read. I loved Blade Runner, and I'd read Do Android's Dream, mm-hmm. and I'd read yep. maybe Flow My Tears or something, another book yeah. by him. Yep. yep. And then, which was it was Flow My Tears because then Waking Life came out, okay. and there's this amazing speech that Richard Linklater actually gives about Philip K. Dick in that movie, and I had read I Flow My Tears, yeah. and so. 
and so he's referencing this essay, which refers back to, to Flow My Tears and all this cool stuff. And so I got really more into it. And I wanted mm-hmm. to read more about who Philip K. Dick was mm-hmm. and read more of the material. And then obviously, um, uh, well, and then, then I moved to L.A. and I was working in some talent office uh, at this company, Anonymous Content. Yep. Which this all circles back. Absolutely. Uh, and this guy, this literary manager came up into the talent office. He said he was looking for an assistant. And he's like, I, uh, I represent – he's sort of a, um, uh, a quirky guy. He's mm-hmm. a really, really great guy. But he represented only three authors and they were Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. uh, Elmore Leonard and mm-hmm. Roald Dahl. Okay. And I was like, oh, well, wow. I know everything those guys ever wrote uh, yeah, ever. Totally. And so like I would like to be your assistant. That would yeah. be awesome. Yeah, definitely. And he was like, OK, you got the job. Yeah. And, uh, and then the guy I was taking over with mm-hmm. um, was uh, Travis Centel. So he was the assistant before me, and we became writing partners. I was going to say, you, that's the, you, the episode you wrote was with Travis, right? Yeah, so okay. we met. So this all happened in like this sort of small little incubator at Anonymous Content where I became part of the Philip K. Dick estate through wow. this manager, uh, met my writing partner, and uh, and started down this long, long road, which would ultimately in some ways lead to Electric Dreams. Yeah, how serendipitous is that? I mean, an author that uh, you love so much and kind of your world's uh, just mixed like that. and. I mean, not to be this guy, but it's very, it's very Philip K. Dick. People think of yeah. him as a cynic, but not, not really. He's sort of, he's sort of into these, these kind of, you know, what is time, what is reality? Absolutely, I mean, alternate realities. There's, there's all a mechanism that. to this. Yeah. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a lot of fun to be a, have your favorite author be a guy who's wrote, I think, like thirty six books and a hundred and twenty <laughs> short stories or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. Yeah, there's plenty. No plenty shortage to, material. To, uh, let's do elect. Let's let's just get into electric dreams. Um, and I, I I do want to get into the episode uh, you wrote with Travis, safe and sound. And there's a lot of talked about there. But um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit on the entire project coming together. And you did reference that it did take some time. And but it just seems like there's this remarkable group of people. I mean, it's a it's 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 a whole lot of talent in front of and behind the camera. And I, I'm just yeah. curious if you had any. You know things you could tell us about that. At all. Well, I can tell you some of the like earliest origins. Of yeah, this thing. yeah, that'd be cool. So that'd be cool. We were trying to do they were they not not me yet, but yeah. they were trying to do an anthology series way before there was a revogue for anthology series. Yeah. I mean, it was like so long ago. It was, it was years before Black Mirror. Yeah. And every every time they they came out uh, pitched the project, people were like, "Well, we don't make those. They don't yeah, make those, any financial those, those sense. Don't they, work. They, yeah. yeah, they're not cool. They're not part of what this thing, this mm-hmm. new television thing. Anthologies don't seem to have a role. Yeah. And so they were sort of the door was shut over and over again. They tried to um, work in kind of an over, overall concept, mm-hmm. like it would be like, okay, aliens are. Are, are doing an archaeological dig and every one of these episodes or stories is going to be part of what they discover. So like they were looking for, you know, big overall, um, something uh, a large arc or large, large exactly, arc, like yeah. organizing principles of some kind. Yeah. None of it worked. And so mm-hmm. then we started, you know, we, I, I joined and we started working on other things like man in the high castle yeah. and, and, and other films and other TV series development. And, this just kind of rolled back around, and when we were originally talking about it as an anthology, it was at Anonymous. It was oh. still at it was mm-hmm. originally at Anonymous Content, mm-hmm. and so you know we we've had projects there. Uh, we've developed things with them. They're sort of close friends of ours. We we kind of know those managers and producers mm-hmm. over there very well. Mm-hmm. And so finally, this kind of rolled back around. We were in a first look deal at Anonymous at the time, yeah. And they brought in one of uh, one of the managers there, David Canner, who became a producer on the show. Mm-hmm. Brought in a guy named Michael Dinner. And we started investigating something just to do as a series. And the more stories we gave him, the more he was like, I would like to do all of these. These are amazing. And I, I don't necessarily see one series here. I see 
uh, well, I do, I do see one series, but not one story. Yeah. I see, you know, 10, 20, 50 stories mm-hmm. here um, to turn into a show. And by then, uh, this was maybe four years ago, anthologies were becoming yeah. almost viable again. A little, and, and now they're completely in vogue, which is... Which is and now completely. every channel seems to have their own anthology. Yeah. So yeah, it's like a flagship or, yep. or a marker of kind of being a contemporary channel. Mm-hmm. That's remarkable. It's amazing how that swung around at that time. And, and it's, I mean, it's a fun way to be able to explore so many different topics and bring so many different stories to life. Well, that's the way, you know, I, I can tell you for ESP, Electric Shepherd, the way that we run it, and certainly the way Issa, uh, her philosophy when it comes to adapting stuff mm-hmm. is to find anybody who loves the material and expresses a passion for it and an understanding of it. Yeah. But beyond that, fidelity is really the last thing on her mind. Mm-hmm. She really has no, um, uh, she doesn't put much stock in being literal to the material. And mm-hmm. Philip K. Dick's material is kind of perfect for that because yeah. sometimes his stories will stop midstream. He'll just change topics completely. Yeah. Like yeah. it's all kind of uh, seed material for, for somebody to expand their own thought or yeah. to, to, to take this into a new philosophical direction. Definitely. And so the anthology was kind of the best possible um, expression of that because mm-hmm. we could go to 10 people, 20 people, whatever, mm-hmm. and say, you know, find something that means something to you that you love, yeah. turn it into something that expresses yourself, that really that speaks to who you are, what you believe, um, and treat Philip K. Dick basically as this incredible collaborator who yeah. just gave you the best idea you've ever heard. You know, yeah. like that's that's to me like the opportunity when you're working with Philip K. Dick. It's yeah. like he's a genius and he has the best ideas. So yeah. you know, that starting there, I, I hope that we we could make a pretty interesting anthology show. Yeah. And I mean it paid art. You definitely did and well that's one of the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about the uh the episode that you were involved with writing with Travis. It's, it's entitled Safe and Sound. It's the sixth episode of the anthology. It's based on a short story called Foster Your Dead. The story was written in 1955, yeah. and it centered around uh, bomb shelters and, and Cold War anxiety and, and you know, why the ideas of like a government using fear to, uh, you know, enact legislation enact legislation or to sell an idea while that rang true in both what he was doing and what you ended up doing, uh, you did have to, I mean, you did not have to get the opportunity to modernize it and actually makes a lot of social commentary that's more relevant today. Um, how was that process? What, what were you thinking as you were, you were bringing it to life in this day and age? Um, well, you know, it's funny, it, the, the contemporary thing, um, came far down the, the, the line for okay. us. I mean, it, it was, we, we liked, I, I loved the story as it was as because it, I thought it was a story about, um, a, a kid and his, his dad, or oh, yeah, a parent, yeah. a child parent relationship mm-hmm. basically. Um, and the, uh, divide between generations as the world moves forward technologically or however mm-hmm. these generations and, and, you know, one kid just wants to fit in. He just wants to participate yeah. in that world. And the father sees that participation as something inherently, if not evil, then at least um, uh, uh, less than human. You know yeah. that this is the, the, that you're losing something by by participating in the rat race of capitalism mm-hmm. or, or consumerism or whatever it is, and this is causing a huge rift in their relationship. Yeah. And so, starting there, I thought, well, that's a story I would like to tell a story about because mm-hmm. that seems evergreen. That that yeah. will be contemporary forever. And yeah, I have a. 14-year-old stepdaughter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who I saw <coughs> just entering into the high school phase. Oh, wow. Now I see where you're and going with this. Yeah. It was really 
hardcore for yeah, her. <laughs> like it was rocky and it yeah. was tough and it's a crazy transition. It's a battlefield. Yeah. It's a battlefield. <laughs> yeah. And she was, I, I think it's okay. I don't think she would mind me saying this. No. Um, she'll, she'll never listen to this. Yeah, so yeah, we're good. Uh, we're good she was experiencing, she was experiencing panic attacks. Oh my goodness. And so yeah. she went to, so, and so this was something that we were sort of trying to walk her through and help mm-hmm. her with. And, and, uh, they've since subsided, but I thought, wow, you know, this feeling of anxiety that a, a kid has as they enter into a more complex, Social world, adult world, yeah. you know, um, this all feels like part of the same story. And it's something that I, I thought we might be uh, able to tell based on our proximity. Yeah. Travis uh, similarly has an 18-year-old sister. Okay. And so we were both sort of saying like, you know, this experience that that teenagers and girls have as they enter from one phase to another – and I, and I was watching, you know, my stepdaughter fight with her mother. Or, yeah, you know, I was. That I was, so was just going to ask because I mean, not only I now I'm fully understanding why you chose the uh, the daughter role, but it switched from father son to mother daughter. Yeah, and, and that was. I mean, I. It's funny. I, I met my stepdaughter when she was seven, mm-hmm. and uh, the dynamic that she had with her mother, who was a single mom um, and had been her essentially her entire life, as far as. Um, primary parenting, um, was just a relationship I, I was fascinated by and loved mm-hmm. and really, uh, loved. And, yeah. and they, they don't have the same relationship as Foster and her mother in the story yeah. at all. I mean, yeah. they're not, you know, she's not a, a it's not a mirror. My, my, my yeah. wife is not a, a, a political crusader, yeah. <laughs> you know, who's, yeah. who's trying to, uh, right the wrongs of the world. Definitely. But, um, but of, of course, any teenager and their mother, especially a girl and her mother have, uh, a, a fascinating kind of love hate, embarrassment, admiration, yeah, yeah. adoration relationship mm-hmm. that I thought would be cool to play with. Yeah, um, yeah explore and, and get uh, to know a little bit. It's not it's something that, you know, we don't have a yeah a full understanding of, and it's it's good to dissect and help yeah, come, to, come to an yeah, understanding it, in some way. Exactly, and yeah. it, it just felt so sad to me. The idea of, you know, cultural forces crowbarring between yeah. somebody who believes something so deeply as the mother in the story does, as the father in the original story does. Yeah. And the kid who just needs to survive, totally. they just, just have to live in trying, this world. Just trying to fit into this new place. And, and, uh, the mother's passion, more tyranny was fantastic. Uh, oh she, my God. Her, pa- so her passion lucky. just, uh, just, she, I mean, she's the fair. She blew me away the whole thing, but she, uh, her passion definitely helped build this and, and kind of helped bring the story to life of how intense the divide was. And, and, really what was going on and uh you know it's hard for me not to think about the relevance today in that way with an administration because it's kind of they were in some way immigrants to this new place coming from just what these bubble towns and even though it seemed like the same country but it is like it's you know it's it's you know with an administration now that's painting all immigrants as threats in some ways i was curious if if were you in some ways clapping back so to speak, at some of the rhetoric and actions of uh, the current administration. Is this a way to... Yeah, well, we... Yes, I mean, we, we started writing it while the the election was heating up, okay. basically. Yep. And so as soon as that... As, as that got closer and closer, and then as Trump was elected, we were sort of um, alarmed by the re-relevance. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned that the original story... It's about a it, the original story is about a, a boy whose father will not buy him the latest bomb shelter. Yeah. So this is sort of steeped in Cold War anxiety. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, Trump's tweeting at North Korea, daring them to bomb us, and we were like, we should have just left this shit. Yeah, that's the difference. It came back full circle on us. Yeah, <laughs> um, but but yeah, so like that stuff, you know, became really. It started to assert itself yeah. and become real. And, and you know, 
I, I would say that I think Travis would agree with me. Every decision we made was practical from a story point of view, you know, where we thought, well, we want to illustrate a cultural divide ideologically mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of techno- technology and encroachment and privacy versus, you know, freedom of thought and independence. Mm-hmm. And so let's literally drive a, a wall between two sides of the country. Yeah. Now, that, that to us was not instinctively about immigration or, mm-hmm. or about or about making it about two different countries that yeah. was like what if this ideological split was was literalized yeah um, and uh, and so then when she crosses over it just you know that became a natural part of how you tell that story yeah true um, but it does all, resonate you can't deny that it was all sort of resonating with yeah. something that was really happening absolutely absolutely and, and in two ways in two facets both the immigration thing and just the current political divide in the country because it's all about political divide and and control. Right. Uh, quick kind of question aside, how is it working with um, Alan Taylor? He's a, he's a, I mean, this, he's, he had the first episode of Mad Men. He, I mean, I don't know if you're, oh my a, God. A guy. He's he, a cra- he did I, Beyond I really, the Wall. He did Beyond the Wall, the Game of Thrones. I told him, uh, which is true, when yeah. we, when we started, when we met and we started working together, I own, I own more hours of Alan Taylor content <laughs> than like Scorsese, like yeah. in my collection, you know, cause I have, you know, he, he started his career on homicide, yep. which was like my favorite show ever. Yep. He, he did the, one of the best and most critical episodes of, of Deadwood and, yeah. and a bunch like he's he just six he's feet under ones. There's boardwalk empires, I believe. Oh my, and all these Sopranos episodes. Yeah. Like he's, yeah. his, his career is totally stunning. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, we were really lucky to get him. And, and the, the way we got him, I think, um, is he also has teenage daughters. And okay. so he's, he started to see this as a way to explore the same things that we were looking at. And that's what we really connected on. And, and again, that's it's so funny because what feels like, I think in the end, what feels like a, a technological episode or sort of a technophobic yeah. or, you know, almost Black Mirror-esque look yeah. at a piece of technology really was not the, the chief on our minds. Yeah. That was that was a vehicle was, to tell the story. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There was something else going on that, that I found very curious um, and related to, to something kind of not with that technology or even what I was talking about with the um, social commentary related to, you know, bigger divides. But uh, um, they, there was this thing where teenagers were expected in, in the new society where she moves to were expected to exchange sex or it maybe just hooking up or favors yeah. for uh, for favors or for help it was just something that was a natural thing and i was curious what you're trying to say or with that aspect of the story well again well we thought well two things one is we thought it would be cool if we got rid of the idea of social conservatism and that that oh. was just not an issue yeah yeah and totally so both sides are are pretty freewheeling as far as that goes yeah. i mean the, you know on the on the west we we imagined it was a set of basically hippie communes yeah. where yeah you could tell by the clothes that she she arrived in and all that Exactly. Yeah. It's all like the West Coast is spread across the West side of the country, and the mm-hmm. East Coast, in some ways, is spread across the East Coast. Yeah. Um, and uh, but the other thing, more emotionally, was we thought, well, what's the, what's the, how many elements can we put in the nightmare scenario of going to a new school? <laughs> okay, yeah, being uncool. Yeah, and so like it feels like everybody's having sex at our school. Everybody is literally having sex, yeah. and they're all talking about it, and they're encouraging it, yeah. and it's freaking you out. And so totally. we again looking at it from the point of view of a girl. A teenage girl who's coming into a new scenario, we thought, what would be the most intimidating set of factors totally. to suddenly force into her face to, to, to freak her out on some level, yeah. to make her anxious? Just put more on her. But that's, I mean, that I guess also helped set up the, uh, there was a point in like the second half of the episode where things uh, things turn when she's being manipulated by the uh, 
the air butter, it's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, the air gel, I think in this case, it turns into a bit of a, a psychological thriller in some ways. I mean, it's really intense to watch her kind of break down and you, you know, it, it's, you do get to a point where you can understand how she does something as intense as, as uh, an attempted uh, terrorist attack. And, and so yeah. that must have been pretty wild to write to get to that breaking point or that, you know, turning well, point. Well, that's, you know, to, that was the really the really joyful thing about, and I think is the joyful thing about an anthology, mm-hmm. is it's a weird – that's a weird – it's a weird idea to tell a story, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. It's a weird idea to tell a story about – teenage social anxiety that becomes about cultural paranoia mm-hmm. or social paranoia story. Mm-hmm. And they're emotionally kind of identifiable. Like they, to us, they sort of flow together as an idea, but it's not something that you would traditionally make a film about. It's yeah. just too idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a little too experimental, I think in some ways for a full length feature yeah. and a series would be, would be way too much to, yeah. to explore. You'd have to sort of make it much, the themes much broader, Definitely. but on the emotional spectrum, we thought it would be cool to match those two things together and to turn a, a anxious teenage story into a into a you know a technological or social paranoia story. Yeah. And because we could see the descent when we looked at what could happen to a character like that, it started to make sense. She's already off balance coming into mm-hmm. a scenario like yep. this. Already feels like an outsider, vulnerable, and suddenly there's somebody who's saying, not only are you vulnerable? You don't know anything about this world yeah. and you need someone to help you through it. Definitely. And that to us felt like a great hook for manipulation. Totally. Uh, you know, somebody saying, I know how the rules are. Mm-hmm. I know how the world works. You're at the fulcrum of something and you better do what I say or else we're all fucked. Yep. You know? Yep. Um, and, uh, I thought that, so that's, that's kind of how we, we found ourselves there. And then it was like irresistible to do a Philip Kiddick story, um, about anything and not include, paranoia and not make it about kind of a government encroachment and you know i I, there's the one thing that i've noticed about one thing i've noticed about the response to the episode Mm -hmm. um and i hope this doesn't sound too defensive or like uh, uh, like i'm trying to i don't know tell people what to think or whatever but we never thought of the ending uh and i won't say anything about it in case people want to experience it this way but we never thought of it as a twist it's a sad inevitability. Mm-hmm. It's of, of course that's what's happening. Yeah. You know, we've been screaming about it the entire episode. Well, they, there's a disconnect between the child and the parents, so yep. she couldn't hear it. Definitely. But yeah, no. Well, I mean, I, I was gonna. I, I'll, I'll I'll try to speak in very general terms about that. And but uh, there's a point where it, it's you know it you kind of pulled back the curtain on the deceit in that final um, kind of act of the thing right. where you're kind of showing exactly what happened and it I, I don't think it was a twist at all it actually could have been assumed but I, I i kind of appreciated the decision to hold on it looks like it's can you hear me still yeah i still got you okay oh, good, good we don't need to see each other um <laughs> where, where, where you could uh where you pulled back the curtain and you can kind of see uh you know you you, you kind of walk through the deceit oh. and i thought that now was, i lost you okay i still got you but i'll Okay, now you're back. Okay, so you kind of you actually uh, walk walk through the deceit and actually show the other side of the manipulation, yeah. which I thought was a pretty uh, you know it was it was a it was a you know choice that the you know, choice that was made to really show the evil that was at play. Was that kind yeah. of where you're coming from? We, we we had we had that came late. Okay, uh, you know. And we, we, we added that sort of at some encouragement from um, the, the network and studio. But, but, but I agree with you. I, 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 I just don't want to I, – I, I hope that it's not misread as us 
acting like we're smarter than the audience. Like, like not at all. It's in fact the way that we originally intended it was those epi- those little episodic moments or those scenes would come interspersed in the credits. Yeah. Oh, so cool. We thought they would start by saying you know directed by whatever produced by whatever and those yep. would come in and we I just stole that uh, directly from this movie called Wild Things mm-hmm. where they you know what happened and yet there's sort of a fun feeling of rewalking through the plot on the other side the, on the other side yep. and so it was just kind of a, a thing that sort of said you know these are the faces these are the people this is how they manipulated her um, but again it's it's to me it's a it's aiding I was hoping that it would aid the sadness and kind of crushing feeling um, absolutely as I think it. I think reveal. You know. Yeah, I think I think it definitely did. It definitely made you. You know, when it it just the viciousness of of the manipulation just became so apparent that I I was. You know, at first, at first, I didn't even. You know, I I wasn't watching the time or anything. I thought the the episode was over and just all that would be assumed. And so I was taken back at first, but then when it kind of all came into play, it washed over me in in a cool way. So. Uh, I don't think there's yeah. any reason to be defensive at all. I think okay, cool. it, it, it could have worked more. Um, the uh, you know what was really cool for me is is, is kind of getting to envision um, uh, uh, what a sky full of drones would, could potentially look like. You did a great job with that. Things flying around, and also what communication devices and learning tools such as the uh, Dex, which was also used for yeah. control, manipulation, and tracking, but. Uh, it, it was fun to 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 see, you know, it's always fun, I'm a sci-fi nerd, to see that stuff kind of come to life, but I was wondering how fun it was for you to envision the future of technology and, and how it could be used in both a positive and negative way. Yeah, well, we thought it all, that started with a feeling of, like, what would be beautiful? What yeah. would be, you know, futuristically beautiful and and these the the colored streaks in the sky we thought would be sort of irresistible to the character mm-hmm. and just this gorgeous sort of alive you know colorful place that she she would be excited to to get into yeah. until she started to be become intimidated by it but you know all of that the drone stuff actually again started from the idea that we just thought it would be powerful uh, as we were mapping out the story to end it came from that final image where they spell out so they spell something out in the sky, yeah. and we thought that was a, a unique and weird image to to build to. Yeah, um, and oh, so cool. therefore you you backtrack all this stuff, you know. But no, that was awesome, and that's I mean one of the fun things that these anthologies do. Just they they just there's so many different ways uh, that where where this technology can go, and it's it's just fun to envision them all. Um, yeah, and we and we really it, to, to say again. I know that I'm repeating myself, but it, no, it felt important to us that it, that the the future world be appealing, especially to teenagers. Yeah. Like that, this would be kind of a utopia, a utopic dystopia that yeah. you know reveals itself to be corrupt. Um, but on the surface, it's pretty awesome. Like we wanted it to feel pretty awesome. Yeah, no, and that, that nailed it too. There's, there's, it's cool, man. There was the, it was there's great. There's family bond things to think about. There's a lot of different social commentary that 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 really is is intense to delve into. It's it's I mean that's that's why I was able to ask so many questions on that that are about different topics about this because there there is a lot going on and and, and congrats on that. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, th- well, thanks a lot. And you know, I really feel that you know, having been, I'm also a producer on the series, yep. and so I got to see this process in every different writers and directors um, uh, experience. And, you know, they were all isolated. There there was no room. There was no cross pollination. There was no cross conversation. There was just the producers and then, and our showrunner, Michael Dinner kind of 
controlling traffic, but the, that was it. I mean, they all the, these are these are little movies. They really are. Yeah. And they're, they they're, everybody like brought a very personal take to their story, to their technology, to their world building, to their themes. And so, my our, our hope, our collective hope, is that this would be this kind of extraordinary collection of interpretation of what Philip K. Dick yeah. can be. And sometimes that's dark, and sometimes that's pot light and emotional, and you know, that's the I, I it's a total grab bag that way um but i i can guarantee having been in it that everyone was very very personally loved yeah and, and deep felt so that's amazing what has michael worked on you mentioned the showrunner uh, oh man talk about a long career he, he as well? started yeah he he i think his first tv thing was like the wonder years oh my goodness um, and so he and and before that amazingly although i don't I don't know how much people like to talk about or how much he wants to talk about this, but but I think it's cool. He was like a, a singer songwriter in the seventies in L.A. So he was part of the That's like super cool. He should talk yeah, about he was it all like the part time. Of this, like I know he was like part of this Warren Zevon, you know, uh, Judy Sill, like all the like that sort of you know Eagle Glenn Frey stuff. Like he was into that scene and he was a part of it. And you can find his records. I found one of his records at a at a record store oh, in right. L.A. They're fine. They're great. They're That's little awesome. folky. They're they're folk. 70s folk rock music man like that's what they are and so anyway so so then he did what he moved to wonder years in television uh and then he he most recently i think or most famously did justified he he worked yep. on directed a ton of justified now he's doing sneaky pete at amazon also with uh with brian oh yeah, yeah 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 because brian's one and also ronald d moore is one he uh yeah I'm a, I'm a big battlestar galactica fan so i was fun i loved seeing him in the mix as well yeah and that was all michael you know he had this again from the very beginning he had this idea in some ways that like the more collaborators on this the better because yeah. it would give every individual episode its own such a feeling. unique feel yeah yeah um so speaking of the fact that uh there is so much of um, Philip K. Dick's work out there to uh, to get into. I, I, I was curious if um, Electric Shepherd Productions has anything else in the works, or uh, what? My, I'd like to go ahead and lobby yeah. on, on on behalf of myself and many people in my world for uh, uh, an adaptation of Ubik. One yeah, of yeah, yeah. That, that, we, would, uh, that would be my moment to me. It's, it's it's top of the list, man. Uh, <laughs> like, it, like, it needs we, to be. It really needs yeah. to be. We have an awesome, what I think is an awesome draft of a script uh-huh. um, written by this guy, Jeff Vintar, okay. who's a total brilliant screenwriter, awesome. um, and who we've pulled into season two of, high, of uh, Electric Dreams, if, we, if we're lucky enough to get a season oh, two. Please. Um, that, that script is terrific mm-hmm. as a feature, and we're, you know, the, the funny thing about movies, just in general, is they don't really, they're not really making the kind of movies that we would need them to make yeah, yeah. <laughs> in order to do Philip K. Dick movies yep, anymore. I mean, they, they'll, they'll, again, they'll make a tentpole, but something like even Scanner, I think we would have a very, very, it was yeah, hard to make back now. then. And mm-hmm. Now it would be next to impossible. There's no, that was Warner independent and there's no independent studio arms anymore. Yeah, um, true. And so it's all kind of branded. It's all kind of massive or it's tiny and something like Ubik can't be tiny. It no. just can't be. No, no, and no. So, no, no. Um, so we're working hard, and we're and we're pushing it. We have a great producer named Alex Madigan, who's who's attached with us, and, and we're we're trying to find the right director. And Oof. you know, maybe one day we'll find we'll find a way to make that movie. But it's that, that's one of the, there are like three or four like super crown jewels mm-hmm. that mean a ton to Issa and to me. That like right. if we could see them realized properly, and and again by properly I don't mean literally. Yeah, I just mean passionately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be such a such an achievement. I mean, it's that one. It's three stigmata, which I think is. Just loaded up. Yes. And ready to okay. Go. I didn't know um, that. Oh, it's 
amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's okay, totally, yeah. totally freaky and amazing. Yeah, it's, awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, cool, man. Well, I mean, and there's so many other short stories to work with, so my fingers are crossed for... Uh, well, and that's the thing, you know, uh, part of my job on developing the series, yeah. Electric Dreams, was to, to sequester, you know, 70 or 80 short stories, mm-hmm. which we didn't want to reserve for feature or... TV rights. Yep. So, you know, I say I saved, we didn't save that many, but we set aside just a few that we'd been already developing okay. or that we thought were had a huge potential as as this uh, television series unto itself. And then we actually took a couple of those and put them into season one because we thought maybe there's a way once we get one episode out um, to build that out into a, a larger series or, or some other form of adaptation. And so the idea for the for Electric Dreams was in some cases – Maybe this is an interesting testing ground for a concept to see if it has even more uh, wider, broader appeal as a series or as a film. Or yeah, something. I was. I mean, I'm, I, was, I was hoping that you know, good response of this, and you know, High Castle's done pretty well, uh, as far as I could tell. I, I'm not even sure, but you know, that that could lead to more. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, no. High Castle's doing great. Good. Um, and, are you hard at work at the uh, on the next season? Yeah, we are. We're 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 deep deep into it. We we've we're uh, into post on the tenth episode oh, of the fantastic. third season. So um, it's From, it's pretty great. And I wrote I this I transitioned into the writing staff this past year. So I wrote one of the episodes. Congrats. Did you really <laughs> of season three? Yeah, yeah. Once that pops up, um, if you want to and, uh, come uh, back and, and so talk. So I think that we're we're full steam ahead on that. It seems to be one of Amazon's biggest um, biggest successes so, so far. So it's awesome, and it looks. Uh, at the end of the second season, things looked about to get nice and weird and, and out there in, in a really cool way. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty yeah, we're we're it. sort of we're t- sort of t- making that leap. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> you know, it's definitely. Like, look, at, at a certain point, you have to stop denying you're a sci-fi show. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, you can see. I feel like we crossed that threshold right right towards the end there. Which yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Which makes it fun for moving forward. So if you want to. Uh, Come back and talk, uh, uh, High Castle. I'd love, love to have you back. But, oh man, um, anytime. For this though, I, I just want to say it was a pleasure speaking with you, and congrats again, and, and thanks for making the time. It, re- it really means a lot to me. And I'm, oh, I'm, thank you, Michael. I'm, I think it's it's an awesome thing you guys are doing. I love uh, the site, and I, I love your podcast. I think it goes into some pretty, pretty fantastic places. I try to, I try to mix it up. I mix it up. I'm glad you're a part of that legacy now, and and, and I'm happy to shout out Electric Dreams through this. This is a good way for me to get it both on the site and on the podcast, and really try to try to champion something that I, I, I'm really enjoying and really believe in as well. So thanks. That means a ton. Thank you, thank yeah, you. I'm on it. So thanks again, and, um, and thank you everyone out there for taking another uh, trip with us beyond the margin.